and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. It's episode 103, Sam Levowitz with Jack Hendon, as always, and a happy belated Thanksgiving to you. Jack and I spent the week doing Thanksgiving things. Jack, I hope your plate was plentiful, and I hope your Black Friday slash Cyber Monday wraparound capitalism sales weekend was fruitful to you in whatever whatever way you were hoping it could be how are you doing i'm bored that's that's how i'm doing i'm bored there's no baseball news that excites me uh it's like only rumors so i'm bored we have a good deal of stuff to talk about uh but yeah my thanksgiving was boring because nothing happened um that's I mean, I saw family, like, right? Like, things happen. Uh, my girlfriend and I went to, you know, the Hudson Valley for a day because we saw a TikTok, and it was, that was awesome. Um, but, you know, when nothing happens in baseball, I'm simply not uh, at my full potential. So I'm, I'm missing something here. That's right. It's like, it's like the meme of the, the dude holding the stick, poking the thing. It's changed mm-hmm. depending on the meme, but it's just like pokes the thing and it do something. But do something. It's like baseball, but do something. Apologize yeah. for that ding that you just heard. Text message just came through on my computer. Well, well what I was saying was that, like, all I I said this before the recording. This when it's super quiet like that, uh, it usually means something's gonna drop while we are doing the recording. Oh, so, we will we will keep tabs. I will yeah. continuously check and make sure that any notifications that are coming through baseball wise i'm seeing the stove is cold it is not a very hot stove um it is a hot stove if you like certain depth moves um and or new yuli guriel's dropping um that's the biggest move that we've had since jack and i last spoke to you guys before thanksgiving uh jose abreu the other day signed with the astros for a, a three-year contract, um, which, given the fact that his power has dropped off, but really the rest of his offensive production hasn't, the batting average and the on-base percentage have stayed up, the RBIs have stayed up, this feels like a like a pretty good move for the Astros. It is a little expensive for a 36-year-old. Um, I think he's making like 20 a year. It's something like that. I mean, it's the crawfish boxes will probably help him. The crawfish boxes? Did I, did I say crawfish? You are did they, say crawfish. The Crawford boxes? The Crawford boxes. Uh, those are probably going to – I would think those home runs would go up if he's just pulling things. but You would imagine. I, I mean, mean, yeah. You win some, like... you lose some for the Astros, right? Because, like, they are also, like, kind of burning parts of their house down. Uh Yes. strange to see i don't know what's really going on there but like i guess i'd be excited if my team signed a brew certainly oh, not a uh not as exciting if you're a white Sox fan who they got one mike clevenger for black friday um, oh my god yeah that was the other relatively big money move that's happened mm-hmm. uh mike clevenger one year 12 mil to the white Sox. bit of a reclamation project he's obviously had some good years but uh, seemingly a bit of a head case uh, which we don't have to get into. This is not a Mike Clevenger podcast. Um, but the Jose Abreu thing, I feel like that's going to work out because 
he's pretty good hitter and it's the Astros and things tend to work out for the Astros a hem four world series in the last six years don't ask Jeff Bagwell how things are going in Houston you alluded to that his comments that was today um, not only were his comments crazy his goatee also crazy basically the crux of what Bagwell said and we'll move on from this quickly because not an Astros podcast. This doesn't really have anything to do with anything. It was just kind of wild to to hear a Hall of Famer who is now apparently more or less an acting assistant GM yeah. to the Astros owner, Jim Crane, who is basically the acting GM for the Astros right now because they fire their GM, James Click. Um, to hear Jeff Bagwell say that he doesn't agree with how uh, – Crane's front offices have mostly run things the last few years and that they're too analytics heavy and, and that they need to be taking a look at how they, they do stuff. Man, the team just won the World Series. Brother, you won the World Series. You aren't too anything. This is like the one American League team that we were really worried about at all in October and now seemingly like they're scared of their shadow. I, I don't know what, what, it, what, what the decision is what the process is but like i'm i guess i'm cool with it right like like I, you can you can have a lot of problems with the astros you can have a lot of problems with the way they conduct business you can have a lot of problems with them because the cheating scandal but two things that they do not do poorly at all are scouting and player development those are two things that they do not need to change because those things, they tend to work out for them. They've been to the World Series four times in six years. They've been to six consecutive championship series. And they've got two World Series uh, rings, one of them tarnished, sure, but still in that span. Uh, they don't need yeah. to change anything. Do what you're doing. Okay, that's Jose Abreu. That's the first kind of big ticket item, I would say. Um, besides like Tyler Anderson, who's off the board. Um, yeah, we might have done that last time. We might have touched on that. I'm pretty think, sure that's. I think that was old news at that point, because yeah. he kind of he was in that same window as the qualified offer guys who accepted, yeah. like the Martin Perez's of the world. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. Also, that was interesting. I mean, the the Angels did make another move which we haven't talked about. The first real trade of the season was the Hunter Renfro trade. Oh, yeah. There was the Hunter Renfro trade. Um, it, which is also a puzzling, weird, but not bad move. I think no, that's how I would characterize. There. Get another Mike Trout on your team. Have Mike Trout and the only other guy who could pass is Mike Trout. Yeah, you got two. I, they could pass as brothers. They really could. They look very similar, Renfro and Trout, and the same outfield, no less. Uh, I would classify both those moves, Tyler Anderson and Hunter Renfro with the Angels, as not bad moves, um, but remains to be seen if they're good moves. They're very Angels moves. Yeah. They are very Angels moves. I will say the package that the Brewers got back for Renfro, a bit underwhelming. Yeah. For the year he had, a bit underwhelming. But in times like this, it is important to remember he is still Hunter Renfro. And also, the Brewers might have better things in store for these these pitchers that they got back than the Angels could ever bring out. Um, it's yeah, time will tell because that's a team really. I mean, you think about the Keon Broxton trade; it took a while for them to really get 
the results they wanted, but they still have a, a, a Met farmhand in that deal in their system. Felix Valeria, who's like one of their top prospects now, right? Like yeah. those things, so they so very, very, or I guess they reap very slow benefits from these sorts of things. Basically, the Brewers, while being one of the upper echelon smart organizations, good at developing stuff like that, like all these other good teams, they're like not as good as you might think, given all the buzz around David Stearns, but they are still top tier. They're not like top, top tier, but they're not like S tier, but they're A tier. You know, yeah. they're still very smart. And if they're targeting specific guys from the Angels, I would trust the Brewers to uh, develop a guy more than I would trust the Angels. So that's a, a point in the Brewers' favor in that regard. Then there's a bevy of uh, small moves that have that have gone down in the past couple of days that are that are notable. The most notable to Mets fans probably is that Joely Rodriguez is the newest Boston Red Sox, uh, a one-year, two million guaranteed. But I think he can make upwards of like seven or eight mil with. Um, performance escalators and and various things of that nature. Good for Joely. His vibes will be missed. Yeah. The dancing, the goofiness will be missed. Um, the walking guys, not gonna be as missed. But I was thinking back on uh, on Joely and low key, like the last two months of the season, he was like pretty good. Yeah, I'd say so. I think it 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 definitely forces the Mets hand to to really find a a better lefty and ideally a lefty who's good throughout the entire season rather than just the second half but um I think Rodriguez I wouldn't be surprised if Rodriguez is good next season um he the changeup got a lot better um control has always been an issue for him who's to say if it will ever really uh, improved to the point where he's like, you know, Andrew Miller, right? But it's 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 definitely now an assignment that the Mets are going to really need to follow through on. They can't continue to work on this project, so to speak. This project is basically ended. Um, who's out there? It, 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 I'm not – I mean, I don't know really. It's, it's – right, Andrew Chafin is a free agent. They may have to get creative with the left-hander. I mean, we've seen thing. Okay, so uh, you go back to the Astros. We're just talking about it. The the Astros don't often do things wrong when it comes to roster construction and development, things of that nature. The Astros, for much of the playoffs, they didn't roster a single left-handed relief pitcher. That Framber Valdez was the only lefty that they rostered. Um, This changed in the World Series, I believe. Didn't they roster? They rostered Blake Taylor in the World Series, or was it one of the other lefties that they had in the depth chart? Oh man, you're making me go. You're making me think this through. Um, Because I remember this was a talking point because they wanted to get a lefty on the roster for Schwarber and Harper. I would need to look this up. I I believe. I think it was Blake Taylor, the former Met farmhand who was traded in the Jake Marisnik trade. I think yeah. that was the case. I'm not sure if he ever got into a game, um, but the point remains whether it was him or like a different random lefty who, if he got in a game, he threw an inning. You know, like uh, the point remains is that Will Smith, maybe it might have been Will Smith. Yeah. It was it was one of the two. I think it was one of the two because they did. Yeah, they traded for Will Smith at the deadline, and then he wasn't on the playoff roster until, at minimum, the World Series. Right. The point I'm remains sure. is that mm-hmm. 
while a left-handed reliever, a good one, is uh, is good to have, the most important thing you can have in your bullpen are just good relievers, period, regardless of handedness, guys who can get out uh, both sides of the plate. Like, uh, Brian Abreu and uh, um, Rafael Montero were, like, true, true elite crossover guys for them yeah. who, like, were better against lefties or just as good against lefties as they were righties. The Mets had that this year in uh, in Seth Lugo, mostly. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like Seth is, is really going to be coming back. Doesn't sound like the market for him includes the Mets, which is baffling to me uh, at this moment in time. There are Mets reliever rumors that we'll get to in just a minute, um, but I think before we do that, we should talk about the other couple of minor moves um, that I alluded to. But... The, uh, the left-handed reliever thing is that if they're really keen on bringing in a left-handed reliever, they might need to get a little creative. Um, but I think the most important thing is just bringing in as many good quality relievers as you can, regardless of, uh, of handedness. I don't know if you have differing opinions as the resident left-handed pitcher. That's person. right. That's right. Thank you for acknowledging that. I don't do it much anymore. Um, rest in peace, my rotator cuff. But uh, Matt Moore could be a creative outlet. Uh, had a pretty good year with the Rangers. I really wanted them to make a move for him at the deadline, but he didn't end up going anywhere. Uh, the asking price for him might have been kind of high. Harleen Garcia, I know you like Harleen Garcia. Uh, the Giants non-tendered him. Yes. Um, he's Minor league deal, invite to spring training, make it happen. I want Harleen the Marlin. Uh, Harleen the Marlin uh, would be good. Uh, there's Taylor Rogers, but there might be something wrong with Taylor Rogers. Um, he might be very broken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this might also be a situation where you end up looking at like left-handed starting pitchers who aren't really good starters anymore, but maybe have a pitch or two that would work. Like maybe that guy ends up being Ryan Yarbrough. Um, you know, maybe you, you see if Mike Miner wants to be a reliever again, right? Like you have a couple options, but I, I do agree with you that, Ultimately, having a, a guy who can pitch to anyone is really the biggest thing, um, especially when we talk about, like we did last week, about like buck-proofing the roster. Um, you don't want to give him a left-handed pitcher who can't pitch to righties. You don't want to give him righties that can't pitch to lefties. Like You want him to really be able to count on anybody because the last thing you want is for whoever they're eighth inning guy is going to be let's say right that they re-sign Adam Ottavino because they want to but let's say that the guy's Adam Ottavino like do you want to pull him from a game in favor of you know Jake McGee because there's a lefty at the plate like I'm not doing that but someone who manages the team uh might want to do that right so you need to consider that as well I'll give them credit I mean it seems like they are sort of taking I wouldn't call it entirely an Astros-like approach for a number of reasons. Obviously, we've touched on the, the fact that that approach is evolving, but also um, just the fact that we don't know until we see the results. But they've added a bunch of guys since our last conversation. Um, we talked about Steven Ridings. I think we touched on Taylor Saucedo, who is a lefty, who had decent minor league numbers. Uh, they added a guy named Zach Muckenhern. That's a real name. Yeah. Uh, he's a lefty. They added him on a minor league deal. Uh, he has no big league experience. Uh, this could be just a guy we see in spring training. 
Um, Daniel Reyes is a righty. Um, there are a number of righties that they've picked up who uh, both off waivers and via trade that could potentially uh, be crossover guys for them if things go to plan because it does seem like there is a plan here. There's overlap between three guys in particular and those three guys being William Woods, who they got off waivers from the Braves, uh, a rare poaching from the Braves, um, and Jeff Brigham and Eliezer Hernandez, a reliever and starter respectively, who they basically stole in a trade with the Marlins. Um, now, that's not to say that any of these guys will get much time at all. We, I, I remember when they got Sam McWilliams and we were you know, very much on the Sam McWilliams train and that train never really left the station. But um, anytime you look at someone uh, and you see something on their stat cast or you see something in their, you know, in one of their pitches, it's, it's a little more encouraging uh, than it otherwise would be. Um, yeah. Do we, do we want to get into this, uh, this area of it? Cause we we didn't get a chance to cover it last week because this happened right after you know a couple of days after we recorded. But mm-hmm. I mean they are it's I would say especially the the Marlins trade because William Woods is like intriguing. He's a forty man guy. He's got a good fastball and like a decent slider. And like I am there are some similarities to the same McWilliams of it all. And I'm not just saying that because they both have a William somewhere in their name. That's right. Um, but the Marlins trade, I think has uh, a possibility to have legitimate legitimate impact on the on the 2023 Mets so we can get into that before we do um Shelby Miller to the Dodgers on a major league on a major league contract which is wild Shelby Miller had like what do you have a handful of innings and like a 90 RA for the Pirates this year and the Dodgers gave him an MLB contract they they can't keep getting away with this so we'll see what they see in him because at the moment I do not know what they see in and it's yes it's the same Shelby Miller. Yeah. It is the one who was traded to the Diamondbacks for Dansby Swanson in 1984. I feel like a bunch of teams have tried the Shelby Miller thing too. Like He was a Ranger for a minute. He was a Pirate earlier this year. Like I feel like a lot of teams have taken that kind of flyer and I mean obviously the Pirates system and the Dodgers systems run on very different you know technology but like yeah I mean really it's I feel like the Dodgers are walking quite a tightrope here like these 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 decisions they're making are much like higher boom bust potential like non-tendering Cody Bellinger too like you really they don't miss a lot uh and I wouldn't say outright that non-tendering Cody Bellinger was a miss obviously he might not be worth 19 million dollars which he would have been owed um but you know I mean Bellinger is a guy who has had a good season before and if he goes somewhere else and plays really well or but you know con- um, you know I guess in a parallel vein if Shelby Miller comes to the Dodgers and isn't very good it would be interesting to see what it looks like when the Dodgers miss one um yeah the miller thing i don't know what they see yet but clearly they saw enough in uh, the time he spent as a pirate in his peripherals to say hey we could make this guy something 
half decent again, maybe. I, it's weird because you would think that if it wasn't something they were sure on, or at least sure enough on, that he wouldn't get a major league contract. It'd be a minor league deal. But this is a major league contract. Yeah. So I'm very, very curious. This is That's one to put a little star next to and revisit back in May and see what kind of uh, April Shelby Miller had in Dodger Blue. The other, the other uh, minor deal that happened after a, a non-tender was uh, Jimer Candelario is a Washington National, switch-hitting third baseman, former top prospect for the Tigers. He was only ever okay uh, with Detroit in his four or five seasons there, was non-tendered, one-year five mil from the Nats, and um, hopefully the Mets can figure out a way to get this guy out because you've got it in our notes here, Jack. He screams Met killer. Yeah, that's every year the Nationals have some guy that just ends up being a Met killer. He's got some Michael Franco in him. Yeah, I think so. He's 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 got the prospect profile. He has the power profile. Um, the statistics kind of line up, right? I mean, low average occasional spurts of power that basically you know the home runs kind of like hold up that slugging percentage um he's a new york native so i mean we'll see i i I root for the local kids but like he also he he, uh he came over in a trade to the tigers it was the justin wilson trade was it that one yeah it sent i think justin wilson to the cubs um it was a three-team trade wasn't it pretty sure it was a two-teamer i'd have to look it up but all right I mean, well we're we're gonna dive into this right now because I meanwhile he... i looked up the shelby miller uh saga if you're interested you i'll, uh, I'll keep looking for this trade you go yeah, into that signed quickly. as a free agent in 2019 with the rangers and then was released because it didn't work out signed with the brewers in july 2019 released a month later uh, re-signed with them February 2020, and obviously COVID happened, and he didn't get any action. Um, so that's two teams. Uh, 2021, signed with the Cubs, released in May, signed with the Pirates in July, re- uh, free agent at the end of the year, so we're at four teams. March 2022, signed with the Yankees. May 31st, released by the Yankees. That's five teams. June 8th, signed as a free agent with the Giants granted free agency that is six different teams and the Dodgers being the seventh um it happening immediately after the Giants too is also interesting because the Giants you know usually they get the results out of pitchers when they when they want them um but that's where I was on it what's the Candelario info it, you were right it was Justin Wilson I was wrong about it being a three-team trade I'm definitely thinking of a different trade that involved um uh the cubs and are um not the cubs and a reliever tie the, the the tigers and a, a reliever i was uh, who has been a yankee before probably shane green Ian uh, Kennedy. maybe no there was the it was the i was probably thinking i think i was thinking of the shane green three-team trade which was yankees diamondbacks and tigers which sent oh, DD yeah. to the yankees i want to say that sounds right Unless I'm thinking of another three-team trade, which will just keep going and going and going if I don't put a stop to this. Basically, uh, Candelario was a Cubs prospect, and he went with Isak Paredes in 2017 at the deadline to the Tigers for Justin Wilson and Alex Avila. Paredes is now 
coming off of a pretty good power output season with the Rays, who he was traded to for Austin Meadows, who had just a terrible year, and it turned out he was dealing with some off-the-field stuff. Yeah. So trade webs are very interesting. I, I love that stuff. Justin Wilson's still active, free agent, left-handed reliever. Pretty good year as a man. He was kind of good. Um, I don't know. I mean, minor league deal. Could, Maybe. Could could be nice. Um, you'd have to look at his, his vertical approach angle. That's sort of the thing in common with these guys that they have been adding. Um, I think we wanted to touch on Brigham yes. uh, and Hernandez for a second. Back to Brigham and Eliezer Hernandez, who the Mets got for pretty much nothing from the Marlins about yeah. a week and a half ago. And honestly, they, at the moment, pretty clearly both slide into the Mets' bullpen. Um, mm. Lower into the depth chart, uh, Hernandez is a guy who can start and probably might be on the starting depth chart roster. Mm. Uh, but Brigham is a guy who's fastball slider, and you might be able to work that into a better profile because apparently, and you were touching on this, so I'll let you just you know riff on it, um, there is something to like in these guys that all three of them, Brigham, Hernandez, and William Woods, all have something in their profile that indicate they can be better than they've been, right? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, it's called VAA. Um, it was at MJD underscore analysis on Twitter who pointed this out. So I just want to give credit where it's due. Um, they're basically, I, I believe it's in inches above average angle that they run this by and obviously it's it's always going to be negative because you're pitching you're letting go of the ball you're approaching the plate at a negative angle um but these were pretty far below average um negative 4.1 for uh for woods negative 4.4 for brigham uh what this essentially amounts to and it tends to translate in their spin rates um, is that their fastballs are flatter. Um, they don't have the same spin, and that can be with high velocity. That can actually work fine. I mean, Ian Anderson is an example of a pitcher with very low spin um, but decent velo on his fastball who, when his changeup's working right, right, he tends to get swings and misses. Um, two examples that have worked out, I think, in a similar vein uh, are both on the Twins right now. There's Joe Ryan. Uh, and there's Bailey Ober. Ober's like six foot nine, so this kind of thing is like particularly easy for him um, with his fastball. But Ryan also has a really good biting slider that works for him. These guys throw these flat pitches up in the zone, and it tends to be harder to hit, um, even if the spin is lower at that sort of height above the plate. It's an approach that a lot of teams have taken. I think the Astros. Obviously, they've done a lot in revolutionizing spin on their curveballs and sliders, but also they've been very adamant about having their pitchers throw up in the zone a lot. Um, they're probably trying to do something. I would think the Mets are probably looking to do something similar with these guys. Um, Drew Smith also getting a more pronounced role in this pen translates to something similar, and we saw what his slider looked like this year. I guess it was his cutter, right? It was that pitch that they talked about in spring training being a great pitch like it plays off the fastball very well because not only does it have such good movement but it's good movement in contrast with a very good fastball that despite a low spin rate moves up in the zone 
gets a lot of swings and misses. Joe Ryan threw his fastball up in the zone about 58% of the time, and uh, opponent weighted on base average was 253, which is like for a weighted on base average is like extremely low. Um, Bailey Ober threw his like 70% of the time, 322, which is also a pretty low number. Um, these are the kinds of things that if you can actually get your pitcher to locate, the results can be very good if they also have a plus pitch. Yeah, it's fascinating because that term you use specifically is that the lower this number is, the flatter the fastball is. But like, if you've grown up around the game or playing the game, it's like flat fastballs to a player, to a hitter, when you're talking about it in like layman's terms, if the fastball is flat, that feels like a good thing for hitters because that would indicate it's not moving really. But it kind of means the opposite. Like what you're talking about is that by flat, you don't mean that it's not moving or cutting or whatever. Yeah. Flat actually means it's got that look to it of having rise. Yeah. Because most fastballs, and this is what VAA is, is most fastballs dip the closer they get to home plate. And batter's eyes are adjusted to that. So when they're swinging at a fastball, they're swinging to adjust for that depth of the fastball. And it's not, you know, getting deeper in the zone or or dropping like a sinker. It's just kind of falling off its plane a little bit because of gravity. But if a guy is able to throw it flatter, it stays truer. And if it stays truer at the top of the zone, hitters are still adjusting for what they think is going to happen to the baseball. And they're swinging under it. Yeah. They so, won't get it. They yeah, won't catch so, up to it, especially if it's high velo, right? I mean, that's an especially deadly combination. Yeah. Um, I mean, so that's why you see these guys like like Eliezer Hernandez throws, throws 89 90. Mm-hmm. But if utilized correctly, not only is he going to get more swings and misses, he's probably a guy who's going to get a lot of pop ups. Yeah. Well, for him, you would hope that you're really getting like premium movement on his off speeds especially Mm. because he's a starter like he'll need i think more things to go his way but brigham i mean if you get his slider right because his fastball even you know it's it's probably at about 97 it's a pitch that like if you can you know deceive a hitter well enough it can it can have really potent results um i think the mets are smart to be working on this by quantity as well um, they're not putting all their eggs in one basket in, in terms of one project. Um, it's also something that we've seen and we've sort of come to trust a little bit more in them because as a whole, the philosophy of this organization and their approach to R&D and analytics is changing a lot. And it's changing, I would say, for the better. Um, I mean, we talked about Jeff Albert. We've talked about um, Eric Yeagers, right? It's It's something that really... Like, I'm more confident in them now than I was in the Sam McWilliams era, right, for them to get a William Woods to, to get swings and misses, um, to get Jake Brigham to get swings and misses, Stephen Ridings, right? I mean, that's that's another example where if he's right, you could get some swings and misses. They're looking at Tommy Canely, apparently. That's another example because he has a plus changeup. Uh, even if his velo is down, if you trust his VAA, I would need to see what it is. But, um, I mean, yeah, it, it might be a good point here to talk more broadly about what these like philosophical changes look like because they continue to make them. 
um, they're they're doing stuff with their coaching staff. They made some changes last night. Um, yeah, the shakeup on the on the in the dugout. I think before that, you just alluded to Tommy Canely. We can talk yeah. a little bit rumor mill. I think there's more sure. big picture rumor mill stuff that is certainly worth talking about. But the, on the relief side specifically. They like Tommy Canley. They've been linked to him. They've been linked apparently or talking actively, whatever. That could happen. I, I think that if there is a, a thing that happens in Mets land tonight while we're recording, it might be that. Um, Tommy Canley on a Twitch stream earlier this week, someone asked him about coming back to New York, and he said uh, that he, he – I, I can't quote him. I don't know exactly what he said, but he said he'd essentially be very open to it because he had a number of successful years as a Yankee, but a return to New York might – look a little more colorful i guess uh, more orange and blue than maybe pinstripes um if it comes to fruition uh, a guy who had a bounce back season after a couple of injury plagued years away really with the with the dodgers last year and then adam Adovino, the mets are hoping to re-sign adam Adovino, but they want to do it at a one-year deal Adovino, on the other hand apparently is believed to be looking for a multi-year deal because he came he's coming off of a very good season Keep in mind he's 37. Keep in mind he is a native New Yorker um, who has spent time with also both the Mets and Yankees and apparently really enjoys playing here. I feel like it's a slam dunk to get something done with Adam uh, coming off the year he had and who he is with his roots here uh, in New York, in the New York area. I feel like it's a no-brainer given the need for the team. Uh, in the bullpen area, I I feel like it's a no brainer. Yeah, I'd say so too. They they're very clearly like fidgety on multi year contracts for relievers not named Edwin Diaz. Um, don't really know if that's it's a holdover from the Sandy days, really. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't really, I wouldn't say that the Trevor May deal, the most recent example, was like a bad contract for a reliever they got one good year out of him and they probably would have had another good year out of him if they hadn't worked him so badly at the beginning of the season um right when he came back he he looked a lot better uh that's something that i really don't see why the mets should let that hold them back if it's like more than two years sure you 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 know you want to be careful about that but you can also potentially get someone at a discount right an aav discount if they want more than one year and you're willing to give it to them, especially when you have a pitcher who's 37 years old. Um, and moreover, a pitcher who had the kind of season that Ottavino had. He was good against righties. He was good against lefties. He stopped walking people. He kept striking people out. Um, that's, a kind of, that, you know, that's the kind of pitcher that you should be trying to keep, I would think. Yeah. I don't see why not. I like him. I don't year. know how many better options there are. If if the Mets are really committing to this, you know, this bit where they basically plug guys in the way the Rays have, the way the Brewers have, um, sure, I mean, go ahead. But it also doesn't hurt to have someone like Adovino who who is proven, um, especially when there aren't that many. I I'd say like proven options on the market right now you have a lot of pitchers here who are dealing with something dealing with injury uh canely's an example of someone who came back from tommy john surgery he was good with the dodgers but you know he's also 33 um Adovino doesn't really have that he's he's aged pretty well uh compared to most relievers 
it looked it looked for a second like Otto was cooked at the end of his Yankees tenure. Yeah. But I mean, he was really good this year. And credit to him for that and and you know that the you mentioned the relief market maybe being a little bit on the thin side in terms of proven guys or guys with not a lot of question marks and um that is probably something that is affecting his approach as a free agent because he could probably squeeze a team for a little bit more money if uh, the market's thinner. So, sure. But, you know, I, I really don't think I'd mind if the Mets were the team that uh, he squeezed a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, again, I think it's a no-brainer. I really do think it's a no-brainer. Uh, and I think that they should make it happen. And I'm, I, I'm apprehensive to give a 37-year-old reliever a two-year deal, but I'm sure there's a compromise there. Whether it's an option of some sort, uh, I'm sure there's a compromise there. Um, it feels like a pretty good marriage between player and team. And while we're at it on the subject of Trevor May, if you believe Trevor May, he thinks he figured something out when he got healthy at the end of the year. It certainly looked mm-hmm. like it. He said he'd be open to a return, too, on his Twitch streams. And uh, I think I'd be open to it as well, probably on a one-year contract with Trevor. You know, why not? They're really, I mean, teams are lining up right now to talk to Kenley Jansen. Like, that's the kind of market we're dealing with. Yeah, that look, look for a second he was going to sign with the Giants, and then never, nothing ever really came of it. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I mean, I, I guess I like, like, Michael Fulmer. I'm, like, looking through the list right now. That would um, be interesting for narrative purposes, obviously, yeah, with this could be start funny. as a Mets prospect. And they're certainly not bringing Cespedes back because that hot start in the Dominican League has has fizzled out rather quickly. Um, I like Chris Martin. I like him a lot because he's tall. Uh, The Coldplay memes would be good, I guess. Sure, and he was traded uh, to the Dodgers for, who was that again? That was Zach McKinstry, right? Zach, Yeah, it was Zach McKinstry. Zach McKinstry went to the Cubs, and Chris Martin went to the Dodgers. It was a trade that the Dodgers and Cubs made. Uh, It was, yeah, McKinstry. It was Chris Martin for Zach McKinstry. Yeah, it was Chris Martin for Zach. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I have to, I have to look. But yeah, I mean, once you get past like David Robertson, he's probably like, I mean, the Mets really robbed the bank keeping Edwin Diaz. The more I look at this list, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty bleak, man. It's you want. It, I think teams are really starting to pick up the, you know, they're starting to take hints that you need to develop relievers differently than than signing them to these free agent deals i don't know um i don't know D- a couple different routes we can go from here i don't know we we mentioned the the dugout shakeup with air yeah. quotes i'm giving that with air quotes uh which i feel like we should probably just get into um apologize for the sounds uh internal moves eric chavez is the new mets bench coach they've reassigned glenn sherlock away from the bench coach position uh, he will stay in the dugout as a catching instructor, uh, promoting Chavez from hitting coach to bench coach, promoting Jeremy Barnes from assistant hitting coach to hitting coach. Uh, so the dugout, in terms of composition, stays the same, but the roles are shaken up. And uh, the one thing on the coaching staff that, I guess, in terms of composition does change is the Mets bullpen coach, uh, whose name is escaping me. Craig Bjornsson? Yes, Bjornsson, Craig Bjornsson. He's leaving. He is? Did you miss that today? I must have missed it. That's such a shame. I liked him. Yes, he's leaving, and they're uh, searching for a new 
there's they said they're searching for a new bullpen coach who will effectively fill a assistant pitching coach role um which will just be ricky bonus again it's i mean always, it always goes back to him him or ricky, phil regan you know i mean ricky's got good vibes Rick, uh, Phil Regan's also not returning to the organization. Oh yeah. Well, people people are fickle. You never know. You never know. Anyways, so the 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 dugout stuff is interesting. Um, the reason behind it is pretty clear. It was buried in the article after the announcement. Whatever. I think it was Joel Sherman, uh, Jeremy Barnes, who was again promoted to hitting coach from assistant hitting coach. There was outside interest in teams trying to scoop him away from the Mets. Mm. Uh, so the Mets did this shakeup to keep him here and you know good for jeremy barnes good for eric chavez who some people think is a future major league manager he's now a bench coach uh the mets have their seventh bench coach in seven seasons which is truly wild um but i'm just not sure it's really gonna change anything in the dugout i mean buck showalter like glenn sherlock is his dude you know like they're buds and I feel like if he's still in the dugout, then Buck is still just going to go to him a lot with yeah. whatever question, you know, whatever input he needs. Uh, I hope he leans more on Chavez than he does Sherlock, because apparently Glenn Sherlock was kind of a nothing bench coach. Mm. Um, he's but kind I, of inevitable, right? I mean, he's been here. It, it he This is what, his like second stint with the team? and. He's yeah. always just he's 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 just Glenn Sherlock. I don't know. I mean, the Jeremy Barnes promotion is probably the thing that sticks out to me the most. Uh, you know, if not a if not just a, it's good. I would say my initial inclination was, oh wow, they must really like Jeremy Barnes. I mean, yes, they must really like him if they don't want other teams to take him, and that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, it's. Even if it's not explicitly because they think Barnes is better suited for his job than Chavez is, or that Chavez is better suited for the job than Sherlock is, what have you, the fact that they're really that willing to keep a hitting coach around is a good thing. I mean, we saw this mistake with Kevin Long when they let him walk. That was something that kind of ended up biting them in the ass for a long time. We're only finally recovering from that um, six years later. And with Jeff Albert now kind of in charge of hitting as a whole, you you wonder if uh, if the, sh- the hitting shakeup on this side also has positive impacts. I mean, I also have concerns about that in the same way I have concerns about Sherlock still being a, yeah. a factor for Buck. I mean, after a season in which the Mets were generally pretty successful offensively with Chavez as hitting coach, a lot of the returning players, I assume, are still going to talk hitting with Chavi quite a bit Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i just um you know and if that's something to be concerned about because there were some concerning quotes about eric chavez's hitting philosophy as a coach yeah uh that i i'm i just kind of want him to you know be a bench coach i want him to be more hands-off on the hitting side and the instruction side with hitting and i want barnes and jeff albert to lead the way there and again it's the concern that if you give someone a different role than they were originally in, but they're still present, then people are going to go back to them for that original role instead of the person who was promoted to fill that role. That's the concern I have, that if Chavez is going to be there, then, uh, for instance, Francisco Alvarez is uh, maybe a bad example because he was only there for like two weeks. But if like 
I don't know, Brandon Nimmo is comes back and is there. Is he going to go to Jeremy Barnes, who might try to get him to hit for a little more power? Is he going to go to the guy in Chavez who helped him, you know, put up a five-win offensive season? I don't know. There's just concerns that I have. Probably not that deep. I'm probably making too big of a deal out of this. Uh, the Mets coaching staff, in large part, is is fine. There's really not much in the way of concerns there. I just want the team to be good, and uh, I worry. You know, I worry. It's part. It's who I am. It's part of a uh, part of my part of my genes. I worry. Can you, well, can you name the last seven bench coaches? Because you mentioned that there were seven. We should do this. We should. We should absolutely do this. Okay. Well, I know. I have it. I have it. You here. have it? I'm okay, asking well, if you know. Yeah. I uh, I think I can name some of them. Ah, oh, man. All right. So we've got – does Chavez count now? Yeah. Chavez counts. So we've got Chavez. We've got Glenn Sherlock. Go back even further, and you've got uh, – this probably starts with Bob Guerin. Uh, or is this is this in a post Bob Guerin world? It's post Bob Guerin. Oh, it's post so Bob Guerin. It's post twenty fifteen. Oh man, okay. Was uh we we had Rim Jiggleman there for a second. Mm-hmm. That was twenty nineteen. Jim Riggleman. That's three. Man, this is harder than I thought. I'm trying to think of who else we had on Louis Rojas's staff. It's also hard because. Like, those coaching staffs were just kind of, like, blobs of people. You know, no one really had, like, a defined role uh, yeah. the way that we think about it now. You um, could tell me Tim Tuffle was, was a bench coach, and I'd believe you for a minute. Yeah. Oh, man. Be easier if, like, there was, like, a managerial firing for a second, and then they— right. Uh, had they like don't do that anymore. They're like they they're basically no, they've the done that do since that. Randolph. No, they, the Mets don't do that anymore. I don't. Louis Rojas was went straight from quality control to manager, right? Or was he bench coach for a second? Did I miss that? He wasn't during a regular season. He's not on the list that I'm looking at now. Um, he might have been Beltron's bench coach before Beltron I, left. I think he was supposed to be. But then his bench coach in 2020 was someone else. I think you might, just for time-saving purposes, you might need to run down this list. It was Hensley Mullins in 2020. Oh, my. You, we, yes. Hensley uh, Mullins was here. I forgot that we had Bam Bam. Yeah. That was 2020, so that was for a couple of months. Yeah, so that was, a, yeah, like two months. Uh, Dave Jouse was the guy in 2021. Dave Jouse. Dave Jouse, um, yeah. Yeah, that one's tough because he's basically known as Pete Alonzo's batting practice pitcher. Like, but well, I should also, remember that though. Yeah, he also had has that role uh, to his name. Uh, you got Jim Riggleman. Uh, twenty eighteen was Gary D. Sarcina. It will okay. Which was just a terrible decision because they had Mickey Calloway as their manager, and they gave an AL manager an AL bench coach. Which is, but it was also bad because it then prompted them to make Jim Riggleman the bench coach for the following year, and he was even worse. Um, and then 2017, I didn't even know this one. It was Dick Scott. Oh my God, Dicky Scott, yeah, who was actually also in 2016. But if you were to do the seven years from 2017 to 23, it is 
one guy in that role every year. That is wild. Yeah. Wow. Ridiculous. That's um, ludicrous. Okay. Well, I'm glad we I'm glad we got that out of the way. Yeah. That was that was, that was pleasantly uh that was that was that was entertaining. Um let's see. What do we uh where do we go from from there? Should we do predictions? Our are not our that's current r- predictions. That's right. We made predictions cuz way back yeah, we Way never did when. this during the postseason because we were basically in a mourning period, and then we were in a Rich Staff Abigail Noy period, and then a Mike Meyer period. Uh, this is all our first episodes. You should go check out if you have. Yeah, they're they're all great episodes. Bangers. Um, and you should buy Abigail's shirts. Um, but yeah, this is our first episode, just the two of us since they got eliminated. Which obviously we're not going to revisit that after the fact but we had a couple predictions these were kind of silly ones looking back i mean i liked them i think that they're all good but they're not your typical like we didn't make like a cy young for the mets prediction or a, you know a reliever of the year prediction or an mvp prediction or rookie of the year prediction um we did a couple weird ones um i guess we'll start with the one that uh i think is the funniest one and yeah. that is I'm cringing just looking at this. Yeah, this is the McCann WRC Plus predictor. Uh, so going into oh, 20... oh, you're starting there. Okay. Well, that's I think it's the funniest one. I because... thought we were starting. I was looking at the first one that we've got listed here, and my answer. Oh well, that at... one's funny too. That one's funny too. Okay, uh... we can start with McCann. Oh man, this is bad. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know. I think there were some quotes that were pretty immortal. So he posted an 80 WRC plus in 2021. That's not very good. Um, we he assumed was, it would be better. He was Sam really predicted bad. an 86. Yeah, I had an 86. I predicted a 90. Um, Sam gave a pretty good quote when I listened back to this thing um, that I wholly agreed with at the time. He said he can't be quite as bad. It's the Mets. He's also not a good player, so he could be worse. And it was so much worse. Uh, he posted a 59. So, yeah, it, I mean, it was literally like worse than 75% of last year's number. Um, the catcher position is going to be a discussion not just for this off season, it's going to be an ongoing conversation. Like it was not good. Not good. Um, yeah, it was bad. The James McCann experience was bad this year. This is also a funny one. Uh, who signs Michael Conforto? It was nobody. It was nobody. Uh, and I famously said, it can't not happen. He's going somewhere. You were um, wrong. I said the Dodgers were going to get him because I said that uh, I mentioned that they had traded Pollock and they had traded Matt Beatty and that, quote, Cody Bellinger might no longer be a major leaguer, um, which I wasn't that wrong about. But he was bad offensively, but he was rosterable as a player overall Conforto until he wasn't Conforto never played anywhere. Sam, you said the Rangers, which they I mean, they could be in play. Hey, you know what? The one rumor that we had about Conforto 
was right before the uh, postseason eligibility, whatever, at the end of August. Yeah. Like his deadline to have to sign to be able to play in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And the one rumor was the Astros. Yeah. And, and they're still into it. Yeah. Apparently they're still into it. So I was, I was within the right state if we want to talk about proximity to where he almost apparently signed. Yeah. Uh, still doesn't count. Yeah. Obviously. And I have no idea where he goes now, but the Astros seems like a, a safe pick here. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what his market looks like. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I'll say Astros. For all the, with all the turmoil going on right now, I feel like they're probably going to need someone longer term than Michael Brantley. So, yeah. Here's my question for, for you. Is I'm looking at some of these answers and where yeah. things shook out that we've got listed in front of us here that we're about to run through. Why does anyone ever listen to our opinions on anything? Yeah, I well, I would think I think we reflect we try our best to like espouse conventional wisdom. Uh, and I mean, things change like things really do. You never really know. People things can always change. have a weird way of working out. 2022 in particular had a very weird way of working out a great way of working out also a weird way. But um, we had let's see. Which one do you want to go into now? I was just looking at the win total. Oh, the win total is the win total is brutal. We were we were super. I mean, when we say conventional wisdom, we I think we are also at least I tend to be a little bit glass half empty. Um, well, we certainly played it safe on this one. Yeah, we were. We I don't think we did a divisional race prediction, but I remember specifically saying like the Braves are too good. And the Phillies got better than the Mets did. I said they were going to win 86 games, which, like, I think even then that was pretty harsh. I think most people would say, like, 90-91. Sam, you said 87. Um, I did. 101 wins is, like, it's pretty cool. The second best record in franchise history. It makes me happy when I think about it. I don't know. It makes me excited for next year, even if the postseason was a bummer and even if, you know, Jacob DeGrom's fate here is unknown. Like, that's – we do have that. 2022 will definitely be remembered for, like, just all those wins, all those nights we weren't talking about losses. It seemed like every week we were talking about good things. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. There's some wild ones here. I think we should just cook through this one real quick, the yeah. uh, the Tyler McGill Award. Oh, that was that we was had, the good one. Because I don't really think there's an answer here, truly. What we said the Tyler McGill Award was the most valuable organizational ad. It could be anyone who was not originally on their 40, but was within the organization already. I said Josh Walker did not make a major league appearance, pitched pretty well in the Arizona Fall League, might be a potential answer as a left-handed reliever as a depth guy going forward. You said Colin Holderman? which was definitely closer than mine because at least Holderman was, you know, he had some good stint. He had like a good half stint or whatever as a reliever for the team. And then he had some value bringing back Daniel Vogel back so that you could look through it through that lens. Uh, But like Nick Plummer had a moment. Steven Nagosik was like, okay. Adonis Medina had a moment. Nate Fisher had a moment. Bryce Montez de Oca has really fun stuff, but I don't think he had a moment really. Yeah. Um, 
You could give it to Nate Fisher. I think Holderman's a hit, but when they trade him, it makes it a little bit it I think it kind of takes him out of the running in some way. Um yeah, there was I mean like and it's a small sample. Yeah. There isn't like the three guys besides Holderman there that like you can make the argument for are Plummer, Medina, and Fisher really. You but can give all it to those Fisher, fuck it. Nate Fisher. Fate Nisher. Extend the legacy. I'm mad they got rid of him. I always, I really enjoyed the Nick Plummer game. Nick Plummer game was good too. He but he also got I think ample opportunity afterwards to prove himself and Yeah, it, and he was pretty bad. It wasn't great. I remember people were comparing his swing to Conforto's and I was like, This is the Oof. beginning of the end. Like this is this How, is where it drops off. Here's one that's a little less funny, but also uh, Tyler McGill related. The most starts by someone outside of the top three, the DeGrom Scherzers and Bassett's. Um, oh yeah, this one was pretty. This one was pretty tough to listen to. So Bassett wound up making the most starts of the team, I believe. Yeah, I said it would be Taiwan Walker outside of Degrom, Scherzer, and Bassett. I was partially right. Yeah, because it was Carlos Carrasco and Taiwan Walker both made twenty nine, which tied for the lead after Bassett. So I said Taiwan, you Jack said uh tyler mcgill who certainly did not um make uh, enough starts what did he make he made seven starts i think it was like yeah seven i said he i predicted 125 innings look i mean if he'd stayed healthy i think he would have crossed 125 innings like i think he would have soaked up a lot of the david peterson trevor williams games that we ended up getting you really thought this rotation would be a lot more banged up than it was if yeah. he was going to lead the team and starts after those three guys well, uh, at the time, with only 125 innings at the time of our recording that it was the same week that we found out that jacob Degrom was going to basically miss like all of the first half um scherzer i think we were pretty confident was going to get his starts we weren't sure. Taiwan Walker was dealing with bursitis, I'm pretty sure. Um, so the only option after Bassett was Carlos Carrasco um, and then the depth guys. So That's I, fair. I took a chance on one of the guys not named Carlos Carrasco. I was very down on Cookie, and I probably shouldn't have been in hindsight because he and Walker both ended up making 29 starts, which is really impressive and hopefully – it can in Cookie's case it continues because um, that'd be a lot of fun. But listen, I'll I'll take my L on on Tyler McGill. We still have a couple. We still have a couple left here. So yeah, God knows that I've got plenty of L's up and down this. Yeah. Where do you want to go from here? Do we want to do the uh, ranking the the trio of free agent signings in terms of OPS? Yeah, yeah that that was another L for me. I would say uh, it was an L for both of us because we we pretty much said the same thing. We yeah. just kind of got it a little flip flopped. Yeah. Um. You, you and I both ranked Marte, Eduardo Escobar, and Marcana in terms of OPS as in that order. We said Mar Starling Marte, and then Escobar, and then Canna. In reality, it was Marte, and then Canna, and then Escobar. Um, by a fairly wide margin, about forty-five points separated Canna and Escobar, and about forty-five points separated Marte and Canna. So, uh, I think that you and I both share the L on that one, ranking Escobar above Canna, yeah. although he did finish strong, Eduardo did. Mm -hmm. um, Could have been a lot worse if he didn't. 
Yeah, you, Canada however, came pretty close because Canada didn't have a great September while Escobar yeah. did. But yeah, you, however, I would say specifically stipulated that Escobar would have an OPS around 760 or 770, yeah. which makes it, I think, a little slightly worse on your end because right. he finished at 726. Well, 726 isn't that far away. We all know what it would have been had it not been for September because he was in like the mid to high 600s most of the year. I really liked Escobar. I think I think that you were probably more down on Canna than you were high on Escobar, and I was more high on Escobar than I was down on Canna. Yeah, um, that's fair. I think Canna was more or less what, like, he was probably, like, a little bit better than I expected. Like, I didn't expect thought the seven, hit by so. pitches was going to, like, regress, like, his stats would regress if he got hit by fewer pitches. But he didn't get hit by fewer pitches. He got hit by more pitches. Yeah, so. and he hit for enough power yeah. overall. It was mostly in a couple of short spurts, but he hit for more enough power overall to, to keep the OPS afloat. Yeah. Um, and then Marte, we both expected him to be plenty fun uh we also ranked them in terms of plate appearances and this was just a tough one to kind of get right because i don't think either of us could have uh seen this coming that we both thought um actually no we got this one kind of right in a sense we yeah. both thought we wanted to rank them in plate appearances we both said that escobar would get more plate appearances of the three but we then we put Marte and canna Escobar and Canna tied in plate appearances, and then Marte behind them. He was hurt a little bit for this year, yeah, um, which is fair. But that's kind of a win. We yeah. had es- we had Escobar winning that one. We were probably also, I think, at least I remember thinking that can a lot of Canna's at bats were going to go to the Dom JD platoon, mm. and that's and and slash the Cano platoon ish. But it it didn't really end up going that way. Like Canna really, I think exceeded my expectations um and escobar we we were correct in assuming he would get a lot of playing time because he has that that flexibility that plug in at third and second and he didn't really get any reps at second but um he got a lot of dh reps towards the end of the year um that worked in his favor uh but yeah he and canna both tied with 542 plate appearances and Marte at 505 and um that hit by pitch probably changed a lot of it. Uh, the Mitch Keller fastball probably threw a wrench in the order, but I yeah, that that was bad. Yeah, that changed a lot. It did. It oh, did, and not it's really just such in, a shame. It yeah. Oh man, I mean, things could have really gone differently for this team if he was healthy. Yeah, that whole that series in Atlanta, man. That's could have won one of those games. Could have been um, different. Um, most speak- eighth inning appearances. Okay, let's do that one. Yeah, and then we can go to the last two. Yeah. Because you mentioned the JD and Dom platoon. We can go yes. to that one after this one. Eighth oh, man, we were so far off on this one. We both said Trevor May. Um, it wasn't Trevor May. No, it, it was wasn't. Adam Adovino. Yeah. Um, um, I said it's – I stipulated. I said Trevor May, but I hope I'm wrong in that I hope it's Drew Smith. Also not a good answer. Out of, you know, far and away, 24 eighth-inning appearances, most on the team. Lugo also at 20, mm-hmm. uh, to his credit. Yeah. We were pretty far off on this one. But we also didn't – I mean, if if he was healthy and effective, it probably was Trevor May's job. Yeah. 
it probably would have been. I think we probably assumed that Adovino was going to be more of a seventh inning guy, and Drew Smith would be in a, you know, the positive outcome, like the top, you know, 15%, 25% outcome for him would have been like he becomes the seventh inning guy, and Adovino doesn't really have it. But what ended up happening really was Smith sort of. He could have been the eighth inning guy at a, at a point because he got off to that really good start to the season, but um, you know he also got hurt, and that that sort of affected his his return and and it affected his standing. He did he did perform very well when he did come back, um, potentially even better than I think I he was probably higher in my circle of trust than Trevor May was when the two of them were there in October, but Ottavino was far and away the next best guy after Edwin Diaz. Um, he was the eighth inning guy. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh let's move to the I think a little closer to uh, my biggest L. Second mm-hmm. to last one we've got here, unless I'm missing one. I think no, this I is the second to last one. More plate appearances, Dom Smith or J D Davis. I said J D, you said Dom, it was J D, but I don't think it happened in the way that either of us thought it would. With JD getting traded to the Giants and uh, Dom being stuck in limbo for the majority of the year, um, which we'll touch on briefly because we're we're cooking over an hour here, so we'll uh, we'll touch on the Dom Smith of it all in a moment. But before we do that, I don't really th- I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on on the on that, or should we just get straight into the last category? No, I mean, I guess, yeah, the non-tender is something that happened. In the- oh, I don't even mean the non-tender. I mean that category. That we oh, just- the category, right. Because well, the yeah, non-tender we should we should get to in a moment. Yeah, the category here. This was the first one we did. Um, this was – I think this was a W for me, but the L is funnier, I think. Than yeah, the you w can – W is satisfying. You can we, go ahead and list yeah. yours. Top four F4 position players. Uh, my order here was Lindor one, Alonzo two, McNeil three, Nimmo four. Um, you I was had... surprised hearing that back because, like, I thought I was pretty low on McNeil going into the year, but I guess I wasn't. Um, you, you had the right four players, just in the wrong order. Yeah, Lindor was number one uh, in F four. McNeil was number two. Nimmo was three. Alonzo four. Um, Sam, you took a a different route, and uh, it. <laughs> It, I mean, uh, right on Lindor. So I got Lindor first. Uh, we yeah. both said that Lindor would have a strong bounce back year and lead the team in F4 or whatever. We were both right. Then I said Starling Marte. Marte would have been closer had he not been hurt towards the end of the year. Obviously, he still had a strong season. I didn't account for the Jeff McNeil winning the batting title of it all. Um, it wasn't in my plans, but I'm glad it happened. He was not in my top four. I had Pete Alonso third. Uh, because I figured yet yeah, the home runs would still carry him to a pretty uh, pretty good uh, uh, position in the F4 rankings. I was mostly right. Uh, I also didn't uh, didn't account for Brandon Nimmo putting up a five-win season, so he uh, was not in my top four. And my fourth spot, uh, it, it was Dom Smith. I said Dom Smith would be. I want me. Iguodala. I said Dom Smith. I couldn't have been more wrong. I could have. I could have said Nimmo. I could have said 
McNeil. I could have said Mark Hanna and been closer on that one. Instead, I chose a guy who hit 194 with a 284 slugging in 58 games, which equates to a 67 WRC+, which is 33% below league average. Uh, he was optioned at the end of May. Uh, was called up at the end of June, got 51 more plate appearances, hit 208, sprained his ankle, optioned again in Syracuse after his injury. He hit better, but not good enough to earn him a call-up. And entering his age 28 season, in which he would have been owed $4 million, uh, the Mets opted to cut ties and non-tender him last week, which was in between episodes. We haven't talked about it, and... To touch on it briefly, the moratorium on Dom Smith's Mets career, uh, man, it, it's sad. It's I first of all take the L gladly. Um, I was trying to believe in my guy, and Dom Smith, you know, 152 plate appearances this year is not a lot, but he was truly awful. I mean, look, in your defense, I really wanted you to be right and i think everybody wanted you to be right like everybody wanted dom smith to come back from the year he had in 2021 like 2021 was a terrible year a lot of players underperformed um you know were in the weeds right lindor was probably the the prime example because he was being paid all this money and was supposed to represent this new era and you know, he got his he got his just desserts this year and had a really good season. Um, but I think a lot of people wanted someone from those older teams uh, to be that guy, whether that was going to be J.D. Davis or Dom Smith. Uh, I think people really wanted the best for him. Uh, and like, it's really it's not a, this isn't, I think, how players who perform like Dom Smith do with the pedigree coming in that Dom Smith had typically go out. There's typically more animosity. There's more frustration. There's an air of good riddance to it. I don't think I certainly did not feel this way about him when I learned he'd been non-tendered. I was, I think we all saw it coming, right? Cause they weren't going to pay him $4 million for a role he no longer fit in, but um, I definitely was disappointed that it was ending the way it was. I really do want the best for him. Um, yeah, like it, it, it's a shame that the doubters won on this one. I think that's a good way to put it. It's a shame how it went and how it ended. And, uh, whether you are a Dom Smith truther and think he didn't get enough of a, of, of a run towards the end of the season and he should have been called up in September whatever um then you know good luck to you and and in your takes whatever um but if even if you're someone like me who's just kind of more resigned to i guess surrendering to it um it is what it is i think it's it's a shame it's he was a big part of a few Mets teams that were close 2019 specifically 2020 he was their best offensive player in the shortened season and then the power just dried up, and the hitting just dried up. And he didn't hit a single home run in those 152 plate appearances this year. Um, it's just a shame. And I, I 
I think that, you know, I took the news of, of the non-tender as expected, but kind of the final straw in accepting that the Dom Smith that we have is not the Dom Smith who we hoped we would ever get um, mm-hmm. and that we got snippets of, you know, and it felt like that last little push to uh, to surrender to who he is as a player. Um and it always hurts to do that with a former top prospect, with a former first-round pick, uh, to accept that they're never hitting their ceiling. Uh, and if they do hit their ceiling, it's going to be with a different team, and it's time to move on. But it is time to move on. Uh, yeah, I think he is a guy who certainly could benefit from uh, working with a different team. Uh, I think he'll find a team that will give him everyday reps somewhere, whether it's the Pirates or the Tigers or the Nationals or the Cubs, whatever. Go out, find a bad team, get 300, 400 plate appearances, and, and try to reestablish yourself as a big leaguer. And I think that's all he really can do. And Mets fans need to be okay with whatever happens to him in a different uniform. Uh, yeah. Because it, clearly it was just never going to happen here. Yeah. Even when he was going right, and I guess this sort of adds to the, the tragedy of it per se. I mean, tragedy is a very strong word, but – I think what's difficult is that even when Dom Smith was like at his peak, um, there was always somebody better or somebody who was more suited for the kind of role um, that, you know, that he was playing for. I think the prime example really is at first base um, with Pete Alonso. His 2019 season was his best full season. Um you know, I remember him coming back from that that foot injury and hitting the walk off home run to cap it off, and it was like, all right, like this guy's just invincible. Um, there's, there's, this is who he is. Uh, but Pete Alonso was having the kind of year that you don't sit that kind of player out, and he was in um, it. He's having a historic year. Yeah, he's having a historic year. Like it, it's naturally going to block Dom Smith's route to playing time, and I think this year was another example where. I think in a losing season, someone who's scuffling the way Dom was probably would have gotten more opportunities to hit his way out of it, but there simply was no one to sit for Dom Smith anymore. Um, you know, Mark Hanna was hitting well. Uh, Brandon Nimmo was hitting well. Starling Marte was hitting well. They were all in that lineup. Eduardo Escobar at the time was hitting well. He was sort of in a DH role. Like, there wasn't really anybody... Like, McNeil was playing second, Guillaume was playing third, because Guillaume got off to a very hot start, too. you got to remember that. Um, there was nowhere, I think, for Dom to get that opportunity. And uh, I, I do think that it's fine to accept that there was a reason Dom Smith didn't really get much of a chance in a Met uniform while also hoping that he does get that chance somewhere else. I don't think of this in terms of, a team, you know, sat on real talent, and I hope he burns them somewhere else. That's not how I how I internalize this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There, especially once they figured out, for lack of a better term, the DH spot with uh, Vogelback and Ruff. Even though Ruff didn't yeah. work out, Ruff didn't work out last year. He's going to be here next year, whether we have anything to say about it. Uh, really, once they brought Vogelback in. It just never made sense to even call Dom back up. Yeah. Yet when you had the extra roster spots in September, 
you needed to use those really on arms and, and an extra bench spot with more versatility. It, Dom was never – he never made sense to call back up because he's not going to play first base. He's not going to play in the outfield anymore, and now he's not going to DH because you have a better version of him in Vogelback. Uh, so it didn't it didn't make sense to yeah. to use a roster spot on him and you know that's just a shame and that's just part of the reality of having a good baseball team yeah is that you sometimes when guys falter you can't afford to give them uh, more opportunities to uh, to falter more so I, I agree with you um i'm not losing any sleep over the non-tender i will however think back fondly on his good memories here and um be rather melancholic about yeah. his his bad times here um, yeah. and that's and, okay that yeah. happens it's the cycle of being a, a sports fan in a lot of ways is you deal with the ups and downs of, of these players and these people um and um sometimes you have to to watch them play for a different team which may look weird but you wish them well and yeah. we do and uh i think now we can pivot to remembering guys and and, and end on uh maybe a, a lighter note yeah sure um well i i'm i guess i'm not really like thinking in in those terms unfortunately but i think that's also fine because i think just to add to your point about dom smith because my guy does sort of fall in line here it's it's he is the kind of player who i think opening day next year if he's on a roster and if he's starting like I will be tracking the guy's stats because I want to see how he does and where he goes next and what kind of role he has. Um, I think it's it's and that's sort of a rarity, uh, you know. Like I didn't really feel that way about Noah Syndergaard uh, when he went to the Angels. I was just kind of like, well, you know, like we'll just see what what he does. But it's he's not here anymore. Like it's a shame that Dom Smith couldn't have been here for those 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 better days um this season i guess i kind of felt that way um about matt harvey too uh so i'm remembering matt harvey and that might be kind of like an easy remember because like who doesn't remember matt harvey but um i don't know i i I feel like i haven't gone on a matt harvey monologue uh in you know in a while and really it's i think when we look at like the 2019 group for example uh, which was a team that had much of the same pitchers that it had had in 2015 and then the ensuing bad years of 16, 17, and 18. They had DeGrom, who was great. They had Wheeler, who was getting better every year. They had Syndergaard, who was still throwing very hard and everyone loved. They had Mats, who was a pretty good pitcher the last two years he was a Met. Um, but they didn't have Matt Harvey, and Harvey was sort of struggling with the Angels and the Reds, and um, or I guess it was the Reds first and then the Angels, but I remember when he signed with the Angels, uh, I would stay up at like 10 p.m. on nights where he was starting for them, and I would watch just because I really, really wanted the best for that guy, for what he had given them when he could give it, um, when he did have that chance and when he did perform well, and uh you know, the results there weren't great. I, I definitely wasted a couple of those weeknights when I should have been studying, watching him getting beat by the, you know, the Astros and the Mariners. But like, I don't know. I mean, hopefully in Dom Smith's case, I, I, I won't talk about it in those ways, but I will very much be looking forward to watching him play the way I did Matt Harvey. So that's that. Yeah, I, 
that's such an interesting way to remember him and a good way to tie it in with Dom because I think you just brought something up for me that I hadn't processed about Dom is that it's it's a very similar feeling. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point about Harvey because it's a very similar feeling of kind of we watched this player we had high hopes for who did succeed as a big leaguer. Uh, obviously, Dom's highs were not as high as Matt's highs, mm-hmm. uh, but Dom did have some success as a big leaguer coming yeah. off the prospect pedigree. And he had a and fan then base, you know? Yeah, endeared himself to Mets fans. And then it's just this slow, agonizing, multi-year fall to the point of having to just be let go. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of what it was. For Dom, it was two years, injuries hurt, but... I think in Matt's case, really, the injuries were obvious, very clearly what yeah. did it in for him. Um, and I, I also tuned in. I mean, people forget that Matt Harvey was also a royal for a moment. Yeah, the COVID in year. Fact, in fact, in the COVID year, Matt Harvey, I believe, if my memory is working correctly, Harvey started one of the games for the Royals in the double header in which the Tom Brenneman incident happened. It did. It did. That is true. Yeah. I think it was the first game. And he yeah, was like, it wasn't. I remember because I was watching the first game because I was he, still on that. You know, he was I, I decent. still hadn't gotten he was, over it. I think he was half decent in that outing too. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. It was one of those ones. He had the, he had this thing a couple times where he'd come out in the first inning throwing like 97, 98. And, like, his fastball was always moving, like, a lot, probably a lot more than it probably, you know, really should have because he didn't have good control over it. But, like, by the third inning, it was, you know, as soon as the order turned, he was getting hit a lot harder. Um, I'm shocked no one ever tried to make him a reliever. Yeah, well, the Mets did. They, like, demoted him to the bullpen. I mean, like, really tried. Yeah. Like, post-Mets career. I don't know. He, He resurfaced. 2021 as an Oriole briefly mm-hmm. and and had middling success. I think he made like a couple months worth of starts, including he one made against, one the, against Met. the Mets at home. Yeah, including one against the Mets at home uh, at City Field, in which he got a nice, the Mets shellacked him, but he got a nice hand. Yeah, which um, was very nice to see. Yeah. Anyways, I'm with you. I think that you bring up a really nice point about Matt and uh, the feelings and how it correlates to Dom here. And um, I'll be a little less profound, and I'll remember somebody who, as a Met, was teammates with Dom during his best season, albeit briefly, 2020, the COVID year, a year that I often forget exists, and sometimes I look back on it, and I look at some of the names that were Mets that year, and I think there's there's no way that was a Met. There, there's no way that that person was a Met. And I'm looking at this one. This was an established big leaguer who wound up finishing his career in 2020 as a Met after almost a decade in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. A decade in the big leagues in which he was a three-time MVP vote getter, an all-star, a gold glove winner, Someone who put up 23 career wins above replacement. He was a World Series winner. And yet, as a New York Met, he had one hit. He appeared in seven games. One for 16 with a walk. And his photo on baseball reference features him 
in a Mets cap. Do you know who I'm thinking of? Uh, Eduardo Nunez? No. Uh, someone better. Okay. Someone who had a 40 home run season in his career. Oh jeez. Well, why don't you why don't you just why don't you just say it? Brian Dozier. Brian Dozier. Oh yeah. Brian Dozier finished his career as a Met. Minnesota Twins legend Brian Dozier. 42 home run season. Followed when was it up that? with a... like 2016. Uh he hit Yeah, it was 2016 and then in yeah. 2017 he followed it up with 34. And then in 2019 with the Nationals, a world champion, he hit 20. How old was he, like, when the numbers started to dip? Do you have his B-Ref? Yeah, I have it up. He was 29 when he hit the 42 homers. Okay. Yeah, and that's... Then, so, like, really, it was it was 2018 in which he was, like... 2018, he hit 21 homers across 151 games, but he wasn't good. He hit yeah. 215. He had an OPS under 700. After two years of OPS is above 850, and he was traded midseason to the Dodgers. Yeah, uh, that's I I that I never bad. understood. He was how, bad as a how he lost his touch like that. Um, he like rebounded a bit with the Nationals, like 771 OPS, 98 OPS plus. He was like average. He was like an average. Well, that was like a juice ball year too. I don't know. Sure, uh, and then he went to the, in the literally 16 plate appearances as a New York Met. I'm I'm I mean I'm equally surprised that it ended for him as a Met. I mean the writing must have like really been on the wall. I don't remember yeah. any of this. Like I don't he's I'm I like it that way. Like I like not remembering 2020 for so many reasons, but like yeah, that's just god, that's that's like really fucked up. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think that's the best way we could put it. I wanted to finish on a truly Truly wild name to remember and and keep it a little bit light. Brian Dozier, New York Met, not not a sentence that you hear often. Yeah, that that's like it's perverse. I think it is. It's gross. The it's, pictures, the fact that that's his baseball reference photo too. I get he's not like a Hall of Fame or whatever, but this is an All Star guy who had forty home runs in the season. Like, and the fact that his baseball reference photo after like seven productive years as a Minnesota Twin is not the Twins; it's the Mets. It's yeah. I know that like baseball reference photos aren't Hall of Fame plaques, but like it's just a funny way of remembering. Yeah, this. I mean it. It's it's yeah. It. I don't know, man. Some some intern is gonna have a is gonna need a real kick in the kick in the ass for that. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying kick interns' ass. That's not where I'm going with that. But like, I, I you know what? I don't know, man. Is a perfect way to sum it up. I think. Call them into the off. Call them into the office and 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 ask them how this happened. If any current baseball reference employees listen to the Pleasant Good Evening podcast, um, go ahead and change that as a sign of respect to Brian Dozier, because yeah, he doesn't. I don't think he wants to remember his week as a Met. Well, who wants to remember what they were doing in 2020? I, I, I don't. I certainly don't remember what I was doing in 2020. No, that's a fake year. I skipped real. an age. I was 19, and then all of a sudden I was 21. Sam is revealing to everyone the year that he was born on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. Oh my god. I We've talked about how I graduated college in May. People could do the math. Well, yeah. 
I finished the four, I started on I started college on time and I finished a four year university program in four years. So there you go. Do the math. I remember starting a podcast in 2020, and that's about it. Oh, that happened. Yeah, that's something I regret. Just kidding. This is fun. I remember Erasmo time. Erasmo time. I think, okay, if we're getting into the weeds with remembering Erasmo time, I think it's a, a place to put a Free pin. agent Erasmo Ramirez. Make it happen, Billy. Bedtime Billy. Go do it. Uh, quickly checking. I don't, yeah, no notifications. Although right. we we never got around to talking about the Mets Zoom meeting with Carlos Rodon talking about tw- relics of 2020, uh, much like a college student in the pandemic, the Mets have been busy on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin Verlander and Carlos Rodon both having Zoom meetings with the Mets. So maybe next time we talk to you, I think the winter meetings will have started by then, and maybe maybe rodon will be a met or verlander will be a met or uh sango will be a met or just jacob de will be a ray who knows tommy canely will be a matter by the time this drops in the morning some of those guys might be yeah. Mets. so who knows anyways episode 103 is in the books follow us on twitter at the pge pod uh, you can find our Twitters through that if you want. I'm not going to plug our own personal Twitters. That'd be silly if you ask me right now. But he's Jack Hendon, which is, is his at is is just his name. Um, and I'm Sam Lebowitz, Sam Lebo 14, if you want to uh, go ahead. Anyways, the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. This one's in the books. And Mets fans, have a pleasant evening. Thank you.